Uber. If you're from the US and I say that name, you probably think of that president that led us and kept us in the Great Depression. You think of Hoovervilles, cardboard towns that blamed Hoover. In other words, you see a historical bad guy. But since I love a good anti-hero, was Hoover a good guy? He was a scapegoat of businessmen and the common man when things went bad. He almost won the Nobel Peace Prize five times. So he couldn't have been all that bad. Well, every president is not blameless, but every president is not completely to blame either. History is never that simple because it is part of life and life is never that simple and neither are people. Across an ocean, Hoover was seen as the savior of many lives from starvation. How was the 31st president seen so differently depending on location? And if he was so quick to be hated, how did he get elected? We'll explore that, but first it's important to know Hoover's backstory. Hoover was born in West Branch, Iowa, a very agricultural based state. He grew up a Quaker, and many note he did not regularly attend meetings as an adult. But the upbringing is important to note in the fact that it is strongly encourages helping others. But Hoover's early years were tumultuous. First his dad died, followed by his mom, leaving him an orphan at age nine. But soon enough, Hoover was a young man interested in geology. He applied to the very first class of, at Stanford. He met his wife, Lou, in class. Pretty much the only female in the class at the time. After graduation, he went to several places to mine. Dangerous places. Australia, with all of its wildlife, where several men died mining from various dangers. And China, with the Boxer Rebellion starting and people shooting at their house. But Hoover made his fortune in mining. But after a while, he said he knew how to make money. Now he wanted to give back. Today, I am talking with Matt Schaefer in person. First for this podcast to do an in-person interview. Matt is an archivist at the Herbert Hoover Museum. Now, I'm going to have Matt tell a little bit about himself. Okay, I'm Matt Schaefer, and, and we're doing the, I'm doing an interview with Hope Sears uh, in the conference room of the Hoover Library on May 14th. This is, this is the oral history this of me, is, the yeah. context building. Mm-hmm. Um, May 14th, 2019, and uh, I'm an archivist here at the Hoover Library. I've been here for 17 years. It's not my first archival gig, but if I play my cards right, it'll be my last. Part of what I do here is outreach, so I am one of the one of the uh, media faces that people will run into. I'm often confronted by by friends and family. I saw you on TV or heard you on the radio, and it's like, okay, was I edited well? Did I sound reasonably intelligent? Hopefully, I'm a, I did yes. good editing job. <laughs> and and I'm offering this as as for you, hope edit as you will, because I, <laughs> I tend to ramble. Um, 
And one of the first things I did when I got here, uh, the guy that hired me said, uh, we have lots of school groups come through and I want you by the end of the first week to be able to do a tour of the Hoover Galleries and you know educate fifth to, fifth to eighth graders on Hoover's life story. So the first week I was here, I spent a lot of time trailing my older, more experienced colleagues. And by Friday of the, that first week, um, there, the guy who I was replacing said, well, this is my 32nd year here at the Hoover Library and you're my last junior high tour. And I said, well, Pat's been here 32 years, I've been here 32 hours, and you're my first Hoover Library tour. Right. And that happens in his late 30s. Uh, he, he begins to, in his late 30s, as he puts it uh, in his memoirs, grow tired of the game of making money. He knew how to play. He had accumulated enough chips and he didn't need any more money. So he started to look for public service and he reached out to friends and people that he knew uh, at, at Stanford primarily and then across the country offering his services saying, if you need someone to do X. Uh, he offered uh, William Howard Taft. There was a new position created, uh, the Department, the Bureau of Mines in the federal government. And he said, you know, through, through an intermediary, I'd be happy to serve in that. I think as a mining engineer, I have the skill set. And Ta uh, um, Taft said, well, I've, I've got a man already. He, I don't need you. Uh, uh, he reached out again when Taft was replaced by Wilson uh, and said, uh, and Wilson said, ah, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, and kind of kept him at arm's length. And ultimately, uh, public service found Hoover. Uh, when World War One broke out, he and his family were in London uh, doing the mining engineer and family gig. And what happened uh, when the war broke out, it was unexpected. Uh, war hadn't afflicted the European continent for a hundred years. Uh, we had thought we were too civilized to have a nation, uh, you know, a, a general conflict, a worldwide war. And uh, what happened was everything shut down. Banks shut down, shipping shut down, all the normal uh, avenues of commerce and avenues of, of social uh, and, and polite discourse shut down, which left 100,000 American citizens trapped on the wrong side of the Atlantic. And Hoover and his wife said, we can help. We, we, we have resources. We're based in London. We can connect you to, you know, on, you know, on our say-so, people will give you money. On our say-so, people will uh, pay your pay your passage back. And for the first six weeks of the war, they basically were a travel agency. Uh, and, and, and a, and a small-scale bank. Uh, because when the war broke out, uh, among the 100,000 people trapped were folks like young teachers who had done their European tour, and their, their return tickets were voided by the, by the outbreak of war. So they didn't have ready resources to just buy another ticket. So the Hoovers, uh, you know, after they got these 100,000 people back, and when I say the Hoovers, you have to understand, I mean the Hoovers and a group of people around them. They're, you know, they're not miracle workers. They rely on a, a whole coterie of other people. Uh, by October 1914, that had pretty much settled out. Everybody had, was back home and the war was grinding away. And Hoover sent Mrs. Hoover home, said, your work here is done. Take the two sons, go back to, to Palo Alto, to Stanford, and I'll join you later. I have some business to wrap up here. And while he's wrapping up his London business, uh, the American ambassador to London, Walter Heinz Page, calls on him and says, we have a huge crisis brewing in Belgium. Our ambassador in Belgium says that people in Brussels, which is a you know major European city, capital city, are gonna starve by the end of the year if we don't get food into them. Because the German army and the British blockade had interdicted all food delivered to Belgium. Belgium imported 80% of its food in normal times. When war broke out, Normal times are out the door, 
and they can't feed their people. It would, it would have been it would have been the first major year if it if it had not been mitigated. If Hoover hadn't stepped in, it would have been the first European city to face starvation since the Middle Ages, since the Black Death. Uh, Hoover steps in and says, "What do you want me to do? Uh, I, I have some abilities here. I, I have some connections. I know a lot about logistics. I know a lot about shipping. I, I you know know how to raise money." And uh, they said, that's all, we need all of that. And Hoover says, I'll do all of that on, on certain conditions. There's only gonna be one commission for relief of Belgium. There's only gonna be one administrator. It's gonna be me and my people running this operation. And he organizes in the space of, of six weeks, the largest food relief effort in history. Basically, he and his people uh, raised the money and uh, set up the network to bring food and to feed an entire nation. Now, Hoover does this thinking, uh, you know, he knew his history. European wars didn't last that long. I mean, after the Napoleonic Wars, every European war lasted less than three months. And he thought, well, you know, come spring, I'll be back to doing what I do. I'll be a mining engineer again. Well, this World War I was different. It lasted for four and a half years. And Hoover, uh, doing what he thought was going to be a short-term operation, ended up spending the next three years in Belgium, in London, in Paris, and in Berlin, negotiating a safe passage and food relief in Belgium. Fed roughly nine million people over the course of those four years. Uh, as a private citizen from a neutral country, working with a voluntary relief agency. So again, I give Hoover all the credit because Hoover's the organizer, but there are hundreds of people under him who are, you know, doing the legwork and organizing the distribution of food within Belgium. But it, it, it had never been done before. It was, it was, it's, it's now being studied as a model of a non-government organization relief. Nine million people, that's a lot. How did they raise the money for that many people? Uh, raised about a billion dollars over the course of five years, between 1914 and 1919. 80% of that was from governments, from the United States, from Britain, from, believe it or not, Germany, from France. Uh, Belgium had to contribute, and 20% was uh, privately fundraised, uh, privately raised through uh, selling Belgian lace. Uh, literally, there were, there were tin cup drives. Uh, in Burlington, Iowa, there was a school kid who put out a tin cup with a sign, give for Belgian food relief. So this was a problem that people around the world knew about and yes, contributed yes, yes. to help. And, and, and Belgium was, uh, uh, you know, poor Belgium. They were they, they were a neutral nation. Uh, they they were neutral through through all uh, you know all the major wars in the 17th and 18th century, and um, Germany. Uh, in their war planning, recognized that it was a lot shorter path, an easier path, not necessarily not necessarily shorter, but an easier path to go through Belgium to attack France than it would be to go through the Ardennes Forest, which would have slowed things down considerably. Hoover, at the outset, you know, in, in the very first meeting with the with the American ambassador, uh, with some people that he knew in British banking, um, said, "We're going to have to have glass pockets." on this. We're going to have to account for every nickel because as sure as, I'm, as sure as we're standing here, we'll get to the end of this and people will accuse us of grafting, you know, grifting on other people's suffering. And they did. They accounted for it down to the last nickel. It's, it, we have wow. 500, a 500-page 500 book here that accounts for every purchase, 
and it wasn't just nickels. I mean, it's it's pound sterling, it's francs, uh-huh. it's it's a Swiss francs. It's not marks so much, but I mean, it's all these European currencies coming in, and uh, you know. I mean, that's true. It's like that they're gonna get blamed for it if you know, because that's just how that's government, how, well, governments well, work. Well, and that's how people. Mm-hmm. You know, you you look. People are suspicious, mm-hmm. and people asked later, "Why did he do this?" And he said, "That wasn't even a consideration. I did it because it was a problem that needed to be solved, mm-hmm. and I was capable. What, what, what was I just going to stand by and let them starve? That's, I mean, how what kind of human being would I be?" That yeah. is quite amazing. He also served as a um, in the role of Secretary of Commerce under Harding mm-hmm. and Coolidge. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did some of his work entail there? Well, there's a little bridge in there uh, okay. where, where after he, he's doing the Belgian food relief as a private citizen for a neutral nation. When America enters the war, he's no longer working with a neutral nation. So Wilson calls him back to head the U.S. Food Administration. And he just comes stateside and says to Wilson the same thing he said to the American ambassador in London, I'll do this, but, and I have to be the only guy in charge, I'm not reporting to another cabinet member, I want to rely on a nationwide system of volunteers, you know, and and basically uh, over the course of 18 months, uh, with these thousands of volunteers, state by state, county by county, they're able to double food export to Europe because he says food will win the war. Food is a weapon in this war. If we can feed our troops and feed our allies, we'll outlast them and we'll, we'll win the war that way. And they did. And um, after the war, Wilson looks at Hoover and says, very capable guy, come with me. We're going to make you part of the peace negotiating team. And so he's... He, Hoover has now, in six years, gone from being a, a, a mining engineer uh, with an interest in public service to being a public servant with an interest in mining. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's doing all this work for free as a volunteer because he's made millions of dollars. He doesn't need to get paid. And uh, when Wilson loses the... Well, Wilson doesn't run in 1920, but when uh, Harding is elected, he's, he says to Hoover, what cabinet position would you like? And Hoover says, well, what do you got? And he offered him agriculture, commerce, or interior. And Hoover looked at it and said, mm, actually, commerce contains both of the other two. If I play this right, I will have much more authority in commerce than I will in either of the other departments. And uh, I'll point to the books there. You see there's on the second shelf from the top, uh, there are red-bound books on the right side there. Those are the annual reports from the Secretary of Commerce. The ones on the left are from 28 and 29. So you can see they're like five times thicker than the ones on the right uh, because he expanded the reach of commerce that far in his eight years. He wow. just bounced out the walls. So uh, was he like one of the greatest Secretary of Commerce then? Uh, I would argue he was the greatest Secretary of Commerce. I would give you everything in my pocket if you could tell me who the Secretary of Commerce is today. I've made this offer to hundreds of groups, and I've only once had to give away my five dollars. Five dollars? It would be worth your while to drive. I could pay for half your gas. (laughs) 
already filled up on the white hairs. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but but Secretary of Commerce is not one of those positions. It's not like the, that you think about. It's not Secretary of State. You can name the Secretary of State. You you know, uh, it's not even you know Secretary of uh, of you know of War or, or, or Department yeah. of Defense. It's a really in 1920 when he took the job as a Commerce Department. Uh, the Commerce Department was seven years old. Mm -hmm. Tiny. Their responsibility was tiny. Their scope was tiny. He expanded the scope and responsibility, expanded its reach in foreign and domestic commerce, um, got in front of a lot of industries that were just developing in America in the 20s. And uh, I would argue he's the greatest Secretary of Commerce ever because they named the building for him. Who is the Secretary of Commerce now? Wilbur Ross. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you can, I could tell you, you HUD. Right. Uh, ben yeah, exactly. exactly. You, tell, you, you, you can tell me HUD. You can tell me Pompeo, Secretary uh -huh. of State. Uh -huh. You know, you could probably. You know, yeah. But Wilbur Ross, yeah. like every Secretary of Commerce since Hoover, is a cipher. Yeah. You know. You, you know. Yeah. He's, he's he's a dead white man. <laughs> yeah. Now now I'm like. Oh. Man, I couldn't think of it. <laughs> no, and you're not alone. It's, yeah. it's, it's not that important a position, it, but it was back in Hoover's mm -hmm. day because he's he made it important. He ex, you know he just said, look, we've we've got responsibilities. We're, we're the only country that came out of World War One with our infrastructure undamaged, with our economic engine so, unimpaired. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's take advantage of this opportunity and let's expand our agricultural markets, expand our foreign and domestic commerce in Europe and Latin America and Asia. Mm -hmm. Let's let's roll with this. Because if we, if we can get it going, we'll be a decade ahead of mm -hmm. any other country. And he, and he was right. So with commerce, like, was that part of radio, because that was an emerging media mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. time, yeah. how involved was he in that? Uh, he... Um, he was kind of a technophile. He loved new technologies, and when radio is just developing as a commercial medium, and it's it's, it's not clear that it's going to be uh, both a commercial medium and this nationwide network of stations, and it's pretty chaotic in the early twenties. So he convenes uh, conferences in D.C. with all the players who are you know like radio station operators, advertising guys. Um, uh, the, um, there is a, a communications division under the Secretary of Commerce. He creates a new radio division and basically hammers out the rules of play. Okay, um, If you're going to have a station uh, in Detroit and one in Cleveland, they have to, and if they're going to be of a certain wattage, a certain reach, they can't be on the same megahertz. They can't step on each other's channels. Mm -hmm. Basically, they can't set up interference. Yeah. It it has to be seven sixteen eight forty or seven sixteen and sixteen hundred, right. so that there there isn't this uh, squashing of uh, and basically gets the people who know the who know the industry best to hammer out uh, under you know they're not laws but they're they're administrative policies mm -hmm. to uh, regulate radio in that regard and there's some there's some pushback there's some people who say I'm you know it's it's not it's not a law I'm not going to abide by it um, but it, it's a brief pushback I mean the the best example there was a uh, a radio minister Amy Semple McPherson in Los Angeles who said when I, you know when I'm on the radio I'm speaking for God I don't take orders from man. Uh, mm -hmm. Ultimately, she be you know her station adhered to the rules. Yeah, 
Uh, and, and that was kind of Hoover's way. He, he would, you know, see the import, see the impact, and recognize, I don't know, I don't have sufficient expertise to get into, into the weeds and grind this out, but I know people who are, you know, uh, radio station owners who are advertising, you know, media folks, they'll deal with it. It did the same with aviation. You know, aviation is another emerging industry and he convenes conferences on aviation the same way where they hammer out details on uh, like flight paths and uh, flight control, um, uses radio to organize how planes fly in the air kind of thing. You know, some of the things that are still in play today uh, in terms of if you're going, uh, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but uh, you, you know, you fly at a certain altitude if you're going east to west and a different altitude if you're going west to east. You know, okay. they're, they're separated by a thousand feet of vertical airspace so that oh. you don't have head-on collisions in the uh -huh. air. Uh, there, there are certain flight paths set up over cities, uh, you know, in regulations about, it's like an inverted cone. You can't fly, you know, at 5,000 feet within a certain miles of, 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 of an urban center. It's just, you know, you have a certain path up and out. And... All of those things were, were hammered out. At least the you know the rudiments, the the, the basic lines were laid out uh, by commerce, the Commerce Department in the twenties. What did radio, or uh, what did air travel look like before those kinds of regulations? Uh, you've heard of barnstorming. No. Okay, barnstorming is uh, individual pilots would uh, you know get their plane, get a usually a one or two man crew. Uh, a mechanic who could fix stuff as it as it broke, and they would literally uh, go up, fly, do some stunts, land, go up, fly. I mean, it, it was it was the wild west. Uh, the, you know, the, there were people who. I, it wasn't. It wasn't commercial aviation in the twenties. Mm -hmm. It was stunt pilots. Uh, you know, uh, folks who learned how to fly in the war or immediately after the war, uh, and said, you know what. I'd like to do, I'd like to see if I can fly from Cincinnati to St. Louis. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to see if I can fly from St. Louis to Denver. Uh, you know, how, you know, and, and you know. Just people trying stuff. Just people trying stuff and, and you know, people dying. Mm -hmm. as, you know, and uh, as they realized, well, this plane wasn't as sturdy as I thought. Yeah. Uh, and it's not, it's not until Hoover's out of Secretary of Commerce that we see commercial aviation begin to develop. I mean, it starts first as postal routes. It's a way to deliver the mail. And then they realize, if we can deliver, you know, a ton of mail, we can deliver a certain number of passengers from point to point. That would be much cooler than getting them on a train. And, you know, it, it, uh, aviation doesn't take off as a, a transportation medium until after World War II. You know, just, you need a lot bigger planes, a lot more robust uh, engineering, because uh, if you go to if you go to the museums on on, on um, the mall in, in Washington, Washington, and you look at the Spirit of St. Louis, you know the plane that Lindbergh flew yeah. from Newfoundland to, to to France. That's a dinky little plane, yeah. and you just think he was out of his mind to to think that this thing could fly across however many thousands of ocean, miles mm -hmm. of ocean. Uh, but, you know, but, it did. but that, yeah. that, that was, I mean, yeah. Lindbergh's kind of a, a, a linchpin in that, you know, right. in that he, he's one of those barnstormers, you know, one of these, right. well, 
sort of crazy. So everybody thought they could do it. And it's like, yeah. okay, it's, he's demonstrated it's possible. Let's ignore the fact that, you know, five other people tried it and failed. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's, let's just, you know, ignore the fact later on that, you know, Earhart disappeared trying to right. fly across the Pacific. Yeah. Uh, but Hoover, I mean, Hoover knew Lindbergh, he knew Earhart. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, they were, they were rock stars. Mm-hmm. They were the heroes of yeah. their age. Yes, they were very influential, and yeah. like, like Lindbergh's baby, and oh yeah, oh yeah, that. yeah, all that, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Amelia Earhart came, came to the White House, yeah, more than once, yeah, uh, not after nineteen thirty, whatever. No, no, <laughs> didn't happen then. Yeah, very, very, very sad. There, I was mm-hmm. gonna say like I. W- my mom made me change because I was wearing a Gracie Allen t-shirt, like, saying, like, vote for Gracie. She didn't like that. She was like, you're going to interview someone. You should look formal. It's like, what? So your mom and my wife would get along great. <laughs> <laughs> She's met, my, my wife said, Matt, remember, you, you have that uh, podcast. Say, oh, it's radio, man. It's radio. It's like, they're not going to show me. She's like, wear a shirt with a collar. <laughs> Like, uh, but, but I was like, but, but he'd but appreciate it. I, I would, think. I, absolutely, I would, absolutely, I would. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. so like we're gonna talk about radio for like a nanosecond. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would have got a kick out of it. Yeah. And, and we would have commented on it, and you would have edited it out of the final product. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Too proud of that shirt to the. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um. So. Do you know if Hoover later on enjoyed any radio programs? Just uh, that out of my own yes. curiosity. Well, he was more a movie guy than uh-huh. a radio guy. I, I mean, he um, commercial radio takes off in the twenties, uh-huh. um, and and it goes in a lot of different directions. Yeah. There's comedy stuff, and uh, I mean, he listened to Amos and Andy. Um, but he, you know, and he listened because his wife was like a high culture woman. They listened to opera on the radio, so they listened mm-hmm. to Caruso and, and that kind of stuff. Caruso, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, and and, uh, and I'm sure he heard Rudy Valley once or twice. But um, you know, his idea, you know, if if he had two hours that that mm-hmm. wasn't scheduled like crazy, he'd watch a movie. Uh, nice. uh, but did he have any favorite movies? Uh, he never wrote. He never wrote about. Never wrote about his movies. No, no. Uh, I mean, we, no. We just kind of know it because, uh, like when when they were when he was elected in twenty eight, they did a South American tour, and you're on, on shipboard a lot, a lot of free time. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of dull yes. time on a ship. This is and very boring. So he, um, you know, we we know what movies he watched while he was. On, on the USS Arizona and, and the USS Utah. Uh, we know that he had some, you know, some movies that he watched in the White House, but, you know, mostly it was cowboy West and, and westerns. Yeah, very uh, popular at the right, time. Right, yeah. you know, but not, uh, you know, it's, it's not like he said, wow, man, Gone with the Wind, that's my favorite movie of all time. He never said no. anything <laughs> like that. I don't expect to expect him to, especially, I don't peg him for a Gone with the Wind person. No, no. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, movies are, uh, I think they were, they were, uh, like murder mysteries to him or, or, or dime store novels, just yeah. something to keep his brain a little bit engaged mm-hmm. while he was having deeper thoughts about other things. Right. His uh, you brain know. was always going. Yeah. Yeah. His brain was always going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
going back to what him made him appear like a strong leader, he also helped with the Great Mississippi Flood yes, yes. of 1927. Mm-hmm. How did he end up helping there? Um, partly it was... Uh, Coolidge wanted him out of D.C. Coolidge was, uh, President Coolidge was wrestling with the decision, did he want to run again in 28? And Hoover, uh, by 27, had had reshaped commerce, had basically, uh, he hadn't announced his candidacy, but it was clear he was going to run, because mm-hmm. he had run in 1920, in a really low-key, low low-key kind of way. Uh, and, and Coolidge... Uh, he called Hoover the Wonder Boy, and it wasn't because he respected him. It was, you know, uh, kind of ironic. Uh, give it to the Wonder Boy. He'll deal with it. And um, he wanted... Coolidge wanted Hoover out of D.C., and here's a, here's an ample opportunity. He's he, he dealt with the feeding of Europe. He, he dealt with that crisis. Here's an American crisis. Uh, I'll send him down to, you know, get a condition report to... Uh, coordinate the work, uh, the relief work of the Red Cross and the Army Corps of Engineers. And Hoover spent basically uh, eight weeks in, you know, on the lower Mississippi, in Mississippi, in, uh, uh, in um, uh, Tennessee, in uh, Louisiana, organizing uh, uh, flood relief by bringing in food, uh, Having the Red Cross bring in doctors, doing inoculations, uh, you know, working to build, you know, they, they built tent cities. Uh, the, the the Mississippi flood of '27 was the greatest natural catastrophe in American history until Katrina. It was vast. It, um, you know, the, gets 100 miles. The Mississippi River gets 100 miles out of its banks, that's, which is mind blowing. Yeah, that's fine. You know, which means that in Cedar Rapids, if the Mississippi got 100 miles out of its banks this way. Cedar Rapids gets wet. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, it's they, just, you know, a third of certain states were underwater. Right. A, a million people displaced. Uh, countless millions of, anim- you know, livestock animals died. Um, and he organizes the, 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 the flood relief, and, you know, he, he doesn't save everyone, but he, he, mit- he, he mitigates the disaster. And he... Um, Used it as a campaign kickoff, basically. When when Coolidge announced that he wasn't going to run, um, Hoover positioned himself then in the twenty eight campaign as the master of emergencies, and right, and, a, which is perfect for a president, and it looks. I mean, yeah, it makes it's him like, look perfect. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, he. Uh, one of the things that when we do our when I do the tour of the galleries, uh, Hoover's. Uh, he was a very reluctant campaigner. He didn't like to speak. He didn't like to campaign. Um, but he was surrounded by professionals who understood, even though you're the most capable man. I mean, you're running against Al Smith, who's who's Roman Catholic, who's um, for repeal of prohibition, who's got all of these, you know, brush all of these strikes against him. He's urban. Mm-hmm. He's lower class. You know, he's, he, you know, he's got all these things that are going to make him a not a, a good candidate and uh, so but the people surrounding Hoover said you, you can't just 
run a McKinley campaign. You can't just sit on your front porch and wait for the boats to come to you. You have to go out and do some campaigning. So Hoover reluctantly went out on the campaign trail and gave a half a dozen, that is six, campaign speeches. Um, and his team put together a, um, a, a movie called Master of Emergencies where they show Hoover you know, showcase all the things he succeeded. You know, mining engineer who made millions of dollars, uh, fed Europe during World War One, uh, Secretary of Commerce during the best decade in American commercial history. Uh, you know, saved a million people during the floods, and. And for someone like TV wasn't around yet. So no, there's no TV. So so, so, so he this was this like someone out of a book. Yeah, so you know they, they they would set up these uh, screens. You know they they would they would have uh, you know campaign speeches uh, where Hoover wasn't going to be able to present. So they would set up mo movie screens and then show this movie, this right. Master of Emergencies movie, uh, the first uh, political ad. Right. That must have been very, <laughs> you know, that must have been very powerful to, of imagery to see. Yes. Because, yes. Like, I don't, you know. Did, did uh, how, was that normal for campaigning no, back no, then? No, no, no. It, it was a brand new thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, when Hoover found out about it, I mean, it was, it was done by people kind of far down the food chain. When he found out about it, he said, "Well, why would you do that? I didn't, I didn't, right. I didn't sanction that. I don't want you to go forward." And they and they said, "But we've we've got about forty thousand dollars invested already in this." Right. So then, it's like, it's, it's well, sunk cost. Yeah. Well, he he did say to one of his his campaign guys. I don't want the votes of someone who would vote for me just on the basis of a movie. That I want to win them by you know the power of my my positions. It's you know I'm, I'm not campaigning as a right. motion picture star, uh, but he had had sunk forty thousand dollars into it. So yeah. he said, "Oh, well, we'll go ahead, run it," yeah. mm -hmm. and it it was it was very effective. Yeah, I mean, I'm it was new in the early nineteen um, hundreds. There were couple things there was radio there was movies and there was you know the tv that kind of really changed yeah and, and, and tv um isn't really uh it's not used as a campaign tool until uh the 50s really right. i mean there, there are um really thin slices of, of but but radio is a much more effective campaign tool because until after, okay, television, there are there are less than a million television sets in America in 1952. Mm -hmm. So if you want to reach American citizens, you're not going to, you, you know, that's not a broadcast medium, that's a narrowcast medium. That you, 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 you're not going to get enough people mm -hmm. to pick it up. Um, you know, so, so, you know, radio is that way in 1920. There are less yeah. than five million radio sets in America, you know, in 1920, you know, by by 1930, almost every house in America yeah. has radio. Has radio. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. and by 1970, almost every house in America has a television. Mm -hmm. So you know, the campaigns are you know taking advantage of that new medium and you know reaching people where they are. I mean, I can't imagine a 2020 candidate, you know, any of the thousands are out there campaigning mm -hmm. now saying, so you know, what we really need to reach the people. A nice set of radio ads. You know, sometimes those are really effective because they do show that radio. Uh, well, you're you're in your car. You're listening mm -hmm. to radio more than you are TV. People, yeah, well, and TV it has become background noise. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but I, I don't think, you know, we're coming up on the uh, the Caucasus. Yeah. I'd be. A, I've never been to. I'm excited. Oh, they're a gas. They're a gas. Yeah. Go D R what whatever whatever <laughs> stripe. They are something to behold. Uh, yeah. the, uh, if you're at all, if you have a political bone in your body, you will have a good time <laughs> at a caucus. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, but but I can't imagine any of the, any of the um, campaign teams like the media guys saying, you know, what we need. I go, mean, the, the, go back immediately. Yeah, let's yeah. go back immediately. Let's go back immediately. Let's go back immediately. Uh-huh. You know what I think would be really effective? We have these little uh, these little flyers. These, these uh, we have posters that, that we can put up in store windows. Have you, have you lost your I mind? I would love to see that. That would be hilarious. Well, you know, I brought out some of the campaign uh-huh. literature that Hoover ran with in, uh-huh. in twenty eight, just because it's such a different. Yeah, it's uh, a different way of running. Oh my God, it was uh-huh. a totally different beast. And and you know, when I talk to classes mm-hmm. and talk about campaigning, and I, I, for them to understand that you know they would come, if you would go to a, a political rally, they would give you a booklet, not a flyer, not a brochure, but a booklet. booklet. So Here, you we're, study we're, about we're talking about agriculture. Here's what the you know here's well, the that's gotta be very here's what the Republican Party is going to well. I mean, I feel like you would be more informed that way. Yes. Oh, yeah. You 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 have uh-huh. it broken down. Right. And and, and, and they and, have to explain. They have to clearly they, put they, it out. Boom, yeah. boom, boom, boom. You know. They can't be like. I've got a plan. No, no. Yeah. You, you, no, you can't no, be vague. like changing your mind. No, no. it's written right there. Yeah, yeah. And and, and you know, the, the Republican platform, the Democratic platform, in the twenty eight campaign are both books. You know. Uh, and, and people would engage with that. People, yeah. you know, the, the 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 voter was a much more. It was a different beast back then. Yeah. If if you went to a political rally, mm-hmm. um, you were going to be there for a while because it was going to, you know, there'll be ten or fifteen minutes of introductions, right. local dignitaries, you know, the mayor, the the local mm-hmm. congressman, and then the, the the main speaker would get up and talk for an hour, an hour and a half on foreign policy or agricultural policy or. Right. And and the people would, yeah. you know, after the after the rally, uh, get the, the the next day's newspaper and see the whole speech printed out. Oh wow! Yeah. You know, it, 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 today we don't do that. No. You know, if if you don't have, I mean, whoever you are, if you don't have a nice little soundbite, yeah, I mean, you work in TV. That's yeah. got a little bit of an edge, maybe a little bit of humor, mm-hmm. but you know. Bang! Cuts right to the point. You're, you're. Forget about it. You're, you're, you're you're not on the news. It's very hard to cut a sound for Chuck Grassley, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chuck Grassley is is a great case in point because he's been he's been in Congress for forever. He's been in Senate for (laughs) near forever, and he he cut his teeth as a certain style of politician. Mm-hmm. And the world has changed and, and moved yeah. on. And while he does have, I, I mean, I understand he has like a, a, a social media presence. I He's am, very active on Twitter, actually. I, I am just, my mind does not wrap around the fact that this guy that I've seen speak uh-huh. and heard speak can do anything in that little, you know, 
the little box at his social media. He's yeah. got he's got very capable. Oh, he's got, he's yes. got very oh, capable all, staffers. He's he's got they very capable staffers. Yeah, yeah. You know uh-huh. that that say, okay, yeah. Chuck, sign off on this. Right. You know they the, all the, have interns working for them. Right, yeah. right. Who who understand? Yeah. What is this thing? This, this Twitter, Twitter? This Twitter, Twitter thing? thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, yeah. it's been pinned on, and it's actually a KCRG link that's pinned on like his um, one of his Twitter accounts. That's like talking about how active he's like one of the most. He active is, on and Twitter. he's he's like eighty six years old yeah. or something. So you know, you know, he hasn't suddenly embraced this. Right. You know, no. he, he's he a very, very long speeches. Very on the long floor. speeches. And he can't really cut them because they kind of flow b- into b- each b- other. B- yeah. he, he's like Hoover was in his time. Mm-hmm. Hoover's idea of a good speech was to, you know, build it top to bottom and side to side mm-hmm. so that it was logically coherent from point right. to point to point. Oh, yeah. You couldn't take a part out without the rest of it kind of getting weaker. I mean, it was, right. you know, like building a bridge. Mm-hmm. And and you can't right. take an element out without it falling down, you know. Right. And and, and that's not how. Right. And that's not how. You know. Uh, yeah. It's not. Yeah. It, it doesn't work that well anymore. For better or for worse, that's yeah. how it is. Yeah. Yeah. So now Hoover has a record for showing his humanitarian side. Um, I'm assuming that yes did place him in like a really good position. Um, but was he certain about what party he was going for? Yes, uh, because when he came out of World War One, both parties made approaches to him in 1920, uh, uh, thinking he'd be a good candidate in 20, because there, it, you know, there, there wasn't a strong candidate on, on either side. And um, Franklin Roosevelt actually wrote to one of Hoover's friends uh, a really nice letter saying, you know, this Hoover guy, I think he'd be a great candidate for the Democratic, uh, you know, either top of the ticket yeah. or number two in 1920. Mm-hmm. And uh, the friend showed this to Hoover, who had a laugh, and, and yeah. wrote, wrote back to him and said, you know, uh, I'm flattered, but I'm not of your tribe. Um, but people, you know, the, 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 there were movements, uh, you know, not just, you know, at the highest level, but, you know, grassroots movements in Michigan, for example, that mm-hmm. that had him on both sides, you know, oh. as a candidate nice. for Democrats and Republicans. Um, you know, he, he ultimately resolved that issue and in, in said, look, I've been a Republican as long as I've had a political awareness. I mean, going back to my childhood in West Branch, mm-hmm. I, you know, my earliest memories were, you know, campaign, you know, being a torchbearer at a, at a Garfield campaign, you know, I, I wasn't going for those Democrats. There were only three Democrats in West Branch, and I wasn't one of them. He was running against uh, a Roman Catholic, he said? Al Smith, yeah. Yeah, yeah. did his, um, did him being a Quaker ever come into... No, but because while he was ostensibly a Quaker, Quaker was, a, you know, more, was closer to the Protestant mainstream than any you know, papist from the city. You know, I mean, there, there, there were smears in, in the, again, the world was very different in 1928 mm-hmm. um, when you, you know, you, when you had your operatives smear the other guy, you know, you painted him with, a, well, you we elect a Roman Catholic, the next thing, we, you know, the Pope is going to control the American, you know, the American army. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, no, I don't think yeah. Al Smith would know the Pope if the Pope stepped on his foot. But, but you know, that was a kind of fear-mongering. You know, uh-huh. I mean, we see it today, uh, although with a different mm-hmm. uh, s- uh, slice of religion, where, you know, Islam 
is oh, and if you're you know if if you profess Islam, you must clearly be part of a you know Islamic conspiracy mm-hmm. so immense and so deep that you know why would we vote for you? You know you're going to mm-hmm. make us uh, a caliphate. Well, no, you know we, we you know Al Smith was not going to make America a papist state, but you know when you campaign, you take advantage of every lever you have and. So they, they hit him with that a couple of times. I, I mean, it would have been hard for Hoover to lose in 28. Because right. because he had succeeded at everything he'd done. You know, uh, he was he, he embodied the American dream. Uh, for By and large, the American economy was booming. I mean, there were certain sectors that were a little bit squishy, like the farm economy. But but Hoover campaigned with, with farm as his first, ag as his first priority. You know, he said, I'm going to convene a special session of Congress and we're going to resolve the, you know, the, the problems we're facing with American agriculture. So he was able to, to win in a landslide. I mean, he, he won all but six states, all but, I want to say, 60 electoral votes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the largest landslide since Washington. Wow. Which is... Yeah. Wow. Which... Yeah, it, it for the way he is portrayed now, it's not... Hard to believe, yeah, right? It's, it's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. And then he lost in the largest landslide yeah. four years later. Mm-hmm. You know, what right. happened? Well, the Depression happened, and he, right. didn't, he didn't fix it. Right. Um, uh, so did his Quaker... How did his Quaker upbringing factor into just, like, his daily life, the way he lived? Um, I, I, I think... He was like, he, I say this, and, and you're gonna, you're gonna have to edit it out. He's a Quaker, like I'm a Catholic. He was raised a Quaker, but he, as he grew up, he grew away from the faith. Mm-hmm. He he didn't he didn't go to services very often. Mm-hmm. He he went like I think five times while he was president. Um, but, you know, when he, when he started doing food relief. That would have been a very Quaker thing, you know. You know, see the right and do it kind of thing. You know, it, it, so he's kind of a Quaker in the bones, but not in behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it, now, you know, when people look at Hoover, like uh, we have thirty-five or forty biographies on the shelf here, and there are folks uh, who look at Hoover, and they're Quaker, and they see his Quakerism. Yeah. Uh, there are folks who are not Quaker and say, eh, he was, you know. More, more, more Episcopalian than Quaker. His wife was Episcopalian, so he yeah. spent more time in in that yeah. denomination. Uh, so I'm really rounding about to the answer, and you got to okay. I'll cut all that nonsense out. Uh, he Quakerism wasn't uh, essential to his campaign. It was his competence yeah. as a manager. It was his Republicanism. Um, you know, I, I mean, what, what, while Catholicism was important to Smith. Especially as it weighted him down, uh, Hoover didn't have to have to play the Quaker card. Mm-hmm. All right, didn't know because you know I'm not really super familiar with Quakerism. Yeah, it it, it, it it's a it's a skinny slice of the, the wider Protestant. You know, I, I mean, I, I couldn't put numbers on it now, mm-hmm. but even at the time, uh, you know, it would have been less than way less than 10% of the Protestants in the country would have yeah. been Quakers. It, it may have been less than 5%. Yeah. Because, you know, you know, we've got Episcopalians, and we've got all the stripes of Lutheranism and Methodism, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's just... Although I did have a former pastor at Baptist Church that grew up mm-hmm. Quaker. So mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of it's kind of interesting there. Yeah, and, 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 you know, I think they show up 
because they are kind of outliers, especially in, in, in terms of, like when, when America goes to war, it's the Quakers who are the nonviolent, uh, you know, conscientious objectors, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Hoover never had to face that because the war, he was 40 when World War I yeah. started, so it wasn't going to be a factor for him. Yeah. Now, okay, I see a huge Truman book there. Mm -hmm. Is do you happen to know who wrote that? Is that David McCullough? It's probably David McCullough, yeah. Because he has the absolute largest Truman book I think I've ever seen. And that's probably why I can read it from this far. Oh, no, the uh, blue one. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. Those, oh, are both, yep. those are both pretty big. It's the blue one, and it is David McCullough. I see yeah. the color. Yeah. Uh, uh, cover. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is absolutely huge, and that's the only reason I haven't bought it. Is because I love David McCullough's work. He's a great, he's, he's a great historian, great writer. It takes me so long to get through them. I still haven't gotten through 1776. <laughs> uh, so I just, I just want to see wh wh where we stand here. Uh, Alonzo Hamby did Truman a long, long time ago. Oh yeah, no, I haven't read that. Uh, 718 pages, not counting notes. Just, just for comparison. Not, not counting notes. <laughs> not counting notes or, or index. Source notes, source notes, source notes, jeez. Okay, <laughs> 400 so far. Um, let's see. So, okay, acknowledgements. No, we want to skip that as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, 992. He wins. Yeah. <laughs> that is a wampin' big book. Yes, oh my gosh. How yeah. old is David McCullough now? Uh, oh my no gosh. Idea. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to have to take a picture of this. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's absolutely huge. Yeah. And he was, um, and I know you guys have this because he, um, Hoover was a friend of Turkey. Well, uh, well, we have, we yes, there's that. But we have books on Roosevelt. And, uh, yeah, and all the... The books here are, are to document... Uh, Hoover's public life and times. Mm -hmm. So basically, so anything that kind of like mentions that, yeah. Yeah. So basically, 1914 to 1964. Oh. You know, when he when he had his, you know, when he was a public figure, not not a mining engineer, not a, not a dad and, and husband, uh, and that covers a lot of ground. I mean, it covers all of World War One, the Depression, World War Two, mm -hmm. you know, big chunk of the Cold War. So you know, almost anything in American history. Um, where Hoover shows up in the index more than twice, yeah. we'll have on the shelf, nice. and and you know it, it, we include some really weird things like, um, you know we've got a lot of Rosewater Lane and Laura Ingalls Water stuff because Rosewater Lane did the campaign biography of Hoover in 1920, and her mom Laura Ingalls Water and she wrote the Little House books, so you know we've got like 20 books there. How involved was she? Like, how what was the how was she approached for doing a biography on Hoover? Um, in 1920, when he was considering running for president, uh, one of Hoover's friends, unknown to Hoover, a guy named Charles Field, uh, commissioned Rose Waterline, a, 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 a professional writer, to write a, a campaign biography. Well, Hoover had one of his other friends writing a campaign biography. Oh, so two biographies. Two biographies. And, and so, you know, his Hoover's friend Kellogg had access to talk to Hoover, talk to his family. Yeah. Lane is talking to people who are like one step removed. So yeah. hers is, you know, a little bit thinner. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it's a better story because she's she's a better writer than Kellogg. (laughs) So, um, but but Hoover, you know, was always arms arms length and you know keeping her at a distance. It's like not authorized. You weren't you weren't my you weren't my person, Um, which is kind of ironic because we don't have the we have the Rosewater Lane papers here at the Hoover Library because the archivist a generation in front of us in trying to document Hoover's life and times realized no one has her papers. Vernon Kellogg's papers were already committed. They were, they were out, at, out at Stanford, at the Hoover Institution. Let's see if we can get her papers. And we got her papers here. Nice. And which was a coup because as we're processing them, organizing them, again, getting them ready for research use, we realized there's all this correspondence with her mom about how to write the Little House books. Nice. Which is, you know. Uh, Great. Yes. Great bonus. Added, yeah, uh-huh. you know, it's like finding a, a, a lump of gold in a box because uh, looking over your shoulder here great great demonstration for radio over <laughs> over over shoulder here are about 25 boxes 25 books on writing the little house books uh, including one that just won the Pulitzer Prize a year oh, ago yeah all of these books right have been written in the last 15 years uh, I wow. mean, except, except, except for, for those but yeah. all of these have been written right. because it's, it's such a cool story um, uh, and it's told here we have the correspondence between mother and daughter and we have drafts and tra- you know uh, typescript drafts and handwritten drafts of how to write the, how to write the books and uh, Rose is saying mom you're not a writer you're not a storyteller let me help you and Laura's saying you weren't there it's my story let me tell it mm-hmm. uh, and you got these two strong-minded women <laughs> you, you told me you told me the story about you you know it's like you and your mom you know Right. Do, do you have you have many points of commonality, things that you agree on, but right. you have points where it's just like, oh, mom, right. you just don't understand. Yeah. And your mom, I'm sure, has the same, oh, hope, oh, you're yeah, hopeless. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that is the story that, we, that we're able to tease out here. Um, you know, we're about these boxes. So that's what the archives are about. And we have 12,000 of them. Wow. And we have one box that I guarantee will be off the shelf more than any other box this year. And it's box 13 of the Rosewater Lane papers because that's the box that contains the correspondence and the and the drafts. Uh-huh. And so, who is like using those that box? Those boxes. It, it, it ranges from from uh, professional writers, scholars, like English professors, um, you know, uh, folks who are. Uh, Rose ended up being one of the founding uh, mothers of libertarianism. She and Ayn Rand and um, Isabel Patterson. And, you know, to just this idea that the government's the problem. If we if we had less government, mm-hmm. things would work out. Right. So, so, less, so, 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 less, so, less involvement in economics, less involvement mm-hmm. in social policy. All, all the way down the line. Mm-hmm. So, so, so there are people who are, who are like political scientists who are looking at the Little House books and seeing, oh, oh this, this, this is so not just a... So they're looking at it for like libertarian ideas yes. traced back to like mm-hmm. the prairie days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Libertarians on the prairie. Yeah? Nice. So, Interesting. So, anyhow, you know, and then there are people uh, who are just fans of, of the Little House books. Uh, there's a thing called Laura Palooza. Oh, I have not heard of this, but tell me all about it. Laura Palooza, Google it, it is, is Lala Palooza for Laura Little House fans. I need to write this down. Where's that pen? <laughs> Where's that pencil? <laughs> okay. Are, are you a fan? I am a fan. Yeah. 
fan. Oh. Also, like, I love the books. I did not like the series, which will kill. I I'm, I told my uh, cousin that she had to listen to this podcast because I was going to talk about it. She loves the TV series. Uh, I did not. No, like, no. The, the, I love the books. The, the, the books are in their own in their own way a unique I read universe. The books first so yeah. like I, well, I didn't I wasn't even aware there was a TV series yeah. and, 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 and just like the books are are uh, you know they, 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 they take historical and personal events and shape it into a story a narrative that that, that you know has momentum and, and and you're interested because the characters are interesting mm-hmm. uh, but but it's not the whole shooting match it's it's not you know every waking moment of, of Laura's childhood right. that's what Rose said you can't you know, we got to skip, you know, nothing good happened in these three years. We don't want to tell the story right. of Burrow because it's boring as all get out. Right, you, know? you don't want to... Yeah, you want to keep, you keep your audience with you. Well, the TV story, the TV Although series does the same... it probably would have been great from an archival standpoint. So yeah. That's probably why it's, like, so valuable yeah. to have those letters. Yeah, and uh, the TV story does the same thing. It, it takes... You know the, the the eight books here, mm-hmm. and it squeezes them and compresses them and, and yeah. bends them in, a, in an interesting it, way. You know, yeah. so so that it fits into the window that TV is so yeah. fifty mm-hmm. whatever forty eight minutes per hour right. that that a story has. You know, a, 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 a little. And eventually, arc. you run out of. Well, you yeah. even Game of Thrones ran out right. of things to say. Um, now I have to turn the page back because I had to write down Laura Palooza. <laughs> And Laura Palooza is a series of events. Um, they, they they have buses that go to Laura sites. Nice. Uh, and and we're, we're we're on the tour sometimes. Oh, you are. Yeah. How far is it? Well, it it, it, it goes. Sometimes it goes to Lake Pepin. Sometimes it'll go to Burr Oak in Iowa. Sometimes it goes all the way out to Desmet. Sometimes it goes down to um, Missouri Mansfield, okay. where uh, they lived. Okay. But you know, it it it, it, it has different. I just Focal yes, points. I didn't realize that it was kind of so close. Hmm. Interesting. I did not. I grew up all over, uh, new to Iowa, hmm. but I grew up in Indiana, Oklahoma, back to Indiana. Now I'm in Iowa. All right. There you go. Everywhere. Everywhere. I'm going everywhere. <laughs> I feel like I've moved like every two, five hmm. years. Hmm. Uh, but I was not like a military kid, but... People Life are. moves you, especially when, you know when you're young. Your mom and dad, mm-hmm. you, you know, take a new opportunity. Mm-hmm. You're not going to say, "I'm staying behind because I have friends here." <laughs> you well, try that, but that one well, doesn't play. Well, up until like I was ten, we lived in one place. Then we moved about two years later, and then they stayed there for a long time. And then they kept moving. I got a job, went to college, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, as a journalist, you kind of like your contracts up like every two years and if you don't like the place you just find a new place yeah Yeah. Uh so moving everywhere i do like it here though so yeah people here people are here are very nice so iowa is it's kind of a you know, it's it's not quite Mayberry, but it's got a it lot. Is. It's very it's close. Got it's a lot close. of echoes of Mayberry. It's very I close. mean, <laughs> it really does. Yeah. You know, where people, if you're driving down a back road and you give them the, you know, yeah, oh, I don't know you, but I'm gonna wave because hey, you right. wave to me. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. How is the drama here as an archivist? <laughs> <laughs> 
drama. Drama archivist. <laughs> I'm trying to get those two words to stay in the same sentence, and they just don't, don't because you know no that there's really not much drama. Going At least not on. here. No, 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 there's no. It's not going to be a show on like some uh, cable network. <laughs> Okay, which cable channel would have to split into how many separate subheadings I before mean, there's a before there's a dramatic? There's a whole series about like what apple picking, cherry pickers, right, whatever. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, storage we, wars. Storage wars, yeah. Um, we are several generations away from having a, a TV show <laughs> on on uh, the History Channel 27. That oh. that's what would be on the History Channel 28. Oh my gosh, what happened to the History Channel? Ah, uh, they ran out of Hitler stories. <laughs> now it's space aliens. I, yeah, I don't know. Oh gosh, man! When I was little, they actually like showed. You know, you think they'd like maybe air re-air documentaries more. The, 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 there must be something contractual that keeps them from right. doing that. That is, is all I can figure. Yeah. Because yeah. now, honest to God, they're probably they, too expensive to just make any kind of sort of content. Do they, they don't even do Drunk History. That would have been a perfect show <laughs> drunk for history, them. Drunk, yeah, Drunk History's on, on like TBS or something. It's, or yeah, I don't know. Or I don't know. comedy. Or, or comedy, yeah, yeah. It's like Drunk History would have been outstanding. Yeah, oh, I would I would stand for Drunk History. I would have a blast. Drunk History was so cool, yeah. yeah. Oh man, it has some great stories. So as a journalist, did Rose Lana ever cover Hoover or no no, no was no. she on like a particular beat or anything no no she was uh she well early in her career she she did a lot of writing um for San Francisco newspapers uh and then then she traveled oh. she spent most of the 20s in Europe uh but wow. and and not like France Europe but like Albania mm. and 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 you know, third, third, weird third world yeah. Europe kind of thing. Uh, then she bounced back mm -hmm. and she wrote for the Missouri Ruralist for a while, which is how was that after going to Albania? Ah, uh, just I imagine very weird because you know uh, she she maybe she maybe she's like me and was like. That's a lot of drama. Let's go. Let's back. come back. Well, and, 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 and she came back and she wrote, you know, mm -hmm. not quite recipes, but, you know, uh, uh, stuff on needlework. I mean, you know, her. Oh, yeah. I saw, like, yeah. Um, when I was looking through the files, it was like yes. a bunch of needlework. I was like, what? Yeah. Uh, because she lived by her pen. I, I mean, you can, you can dig this, right? You know, you live by a particular skill set. Mm -hmm. So whoever paid her, she wrote for Mm -hmm. And and it was a Missouri ruralist. Uh, she she wrote some some novels. She wrote for uh, women's magazines. Oh, and, what did she and, write novel wise? Um, let the hurricane roar. I'm gonna have to write down more things. You're gonna have to hand that pencil over again. Okay. Uh, let the hurricane roar. Roar. Discovery of freedom. Discover your freedom. Discovery of freedom. What's that about? Uh, it's uh. Basically, uh, it's her political philosophy. Oh, so, so you know, that's very popular with the people that yes, are... Yes, exactly, like, like the libertarian. libertarian um, yeah, I'm, I'm flipping through. Um, Why have I heard the name Christine Woodside before? Uh, she's a journalist. That's probably what. Where is it? Here's what the hurricane roar. Uh, 
let me see, the other one's called Free Men or something like that. Discovery of Liberty. Discovery, discovery of, li- of Liberty. Oh, discovery Ooh, of Liberty. That you know, and, and we, we, we have in our papers, um, like her drafts, uh-huh. so I'll just run through some of the titles. Don't Send Your Son to College. Oh, that's very for, relevant nowadays. For, for Women's Day. Don't Tell Me How to Live My Lives. Oh. For Women's Day. Uh, Drive Like a Woman, where she's saying... Very progressive. Where she's saying, I'm driven all across Europe. Right. Don't tell me that I drive like a woman. I'm, da- I'm, I'm perfectly competent as a driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very just very all over the, all, all over the place yeah yeah so was she kind of like uh, an outlier for those days like how no many no, women no 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 women writers were very common were, yeah okay. yeah because there were a lot more women's magazines oh, gotcha. there were women there were so women women yeah there were a lot of women writers who who wrote primarily for women's magazines there was a whole section in every paper including dinky little papers like the press citizen mm-hmm. or the gazette I'm sorry robust Serious journalistic enterprises like the Iowa City Press Citizen mm-hmm. because that that had women's sections yeah. daily, yeah. Not, not not just like you know a women's section that showed up on mm-hmm. Saturday or Wednesday. It it was. So what? Um, I don't know much about newspapers at that time. Do you happen to know if like uh, there were sort of national columns like My Day became? Yes, uh, there were folks who were nationally syndicated. Rose never was nationally no, syndicated, okay. uh, but there there she were. Would have been a good candidate. She she had uh, I mean she had a following. Um, she wrote for the Saturday Evening Post for you know big big time magazines, oh, yeah. Good Housekeeping, Ladies Home Journal, um, Country Gentleman, which despite its title had a really wide wide reach. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, Fifteen boxes of her papers are. Uh, Manuscripts for or, or typescripts of her magazine articles and and her books. So she she she's very prolific. Just yeah, kept mm-hmm, writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, didn't write to Hoover much though. So. No. No. So she so she didn't write to Hoover. Not very much. not that very often. Not be very my often. Next question: What did they talk about in their letters? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. I, I mean, uh, you ask that question, it's like uh. There were maybe fifteen or twenty letters over the course okay. of fifteen or twenty 15. years. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the, but it was. He didn't drop off like writing to her though. Like he, no, he but no, but but he wasn't a frequent correspondent. No. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've got her. I've got her finding aid here, which lists her correspondence. Was Hoover a letter writer? Did he write a lot of letters? He wrote a lot of really short. Uh, like keeping up. He, 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 yeah, just just sort of like the old like like a text he would send. Yeah, bingo, great example. You know where if you wrote him a letter, he would feel he would feel honor bound, duty bound to write you a response, Uh and and he actually had like little templates Uh because he got a lot of the same sorts of letters, and he gave this this little book of uh, it's like five folders of template answers to, you know, if you get congratulated on this, here's how you respond. Response A, response B. Don't send the same response to the same person. Mm-hmm. Uh, Change get, it up just slightly. Just ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was I'm, I was processing... Uh, you know, just to show that you wrote it, right? Yeah, th- th- yeah that, you, that you were engaged with it. Uh-huh. Um, for instance, I, I'm working on a collection of Mrs. Hoover's papers, uh, just doing a little cleanup work, and 
um, when she passed away. He got all these letters from condolence and he kept them all and he responded to not all of them, but, but, but he kept them all and I'm trying to figure out how there was a certain set that he responded to with a handwritten note mm. and a certain set that he responded to with a typewritten note and he would, the handwritten ones, he would have his staff type a transcript of so that he would knew what he said. And reading them, they're all, you know, 80% the same text, but just enough different on the edges so that he knew, that you knew he was, was responding to you particularly. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just like, so that very, personal type feel. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. But, but his, you know, his letters compared to Rose's letters, are incredibly dull and boring because they tend to be as short as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't waste any... Shortened to the point. Shortened to the point, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just like, boom, get it done. Very boom, correct. get it done. Mm -hmm. Boom, get it done. Whereas Rose would write a 500 word letter, you know, one night and write a thousand... Like no, no, just like, bang, you know. Oh. She, she, she was like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, singer's gotta sing, writer's gotta write. Boom. And write a 500 word letter oh gotcha you know just on a random random topic mm -hmm. and you know followed up two days later with a thousand words and mm -hmm. just you know uh interesting very interesting uh you know and, and wow. you can just you really see her personality and her mind uh which is why we have a lot more people writing books about rose than about about Hoover because his are very very short. very short and and there's just functional. The, yeah, there's not a lot of tangents. There's not a, you know. I, I mean, they're they're as minimal and functional as they can possibly be. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I don't know if that's like a a, a male letter writing thing. Although I've, I've read other you know letters in the Hoover files from other men mm -hmm. who, who are like there. You actually get a sense that there's a, there's a a fully rounded human being on the other side of this letter. Whereas with Hoover, it's yeah. just like, ding, dun, ding, dun. Do you dun. think maybe it's, um, speculating here, that it's maybe like a 1900s trait, like, because uh, I feel like letters previous to that were much longer, and then you get up to... It could be, could be. Mm -hmm. No, that, 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 I hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah, I, I just, you know... The world's moving faster than... And, and, and faster so he's got to move faster. He's got to move faster. Because he, he, um... Well, he had a secretarial staff that mm -hmm. that typed his letters for him, and so he well, he'd get a letter in, and he'd just scrawl a response, you know, very quickly, and then type the response up. How many letters? How many letters did he read? Um, like when he was in the White House, did he like only respond to like official correspondence, or did he like? Respond? It varied. It, okay. it varied. I mean, he would respond occasionally to individual citizens' letters. Okay. Um, I used to be able to answer exactly and I mean approximately how many letters he got but I, I, that's yeah. falling out of my head uh, I, um, late in life his his secretarial staff would tally this sort of stuff oh, wow. and say you know Mr. Hoover responded to 25,000 letters this year not counting birthday cards and Christmas greetings but you know actual letters that came in that, that, and it's like okay he's 86 years old 25,000 letters is so much time well, 25,000 letters, say you work 250 days a year. You know, you take some weekends off and some holidays. Mm -hmm. That means you're writing 100 letters a day? Is that right? Is the math right on that? That just seems crazy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so that, I think that's why his letters tended to be so short, is he had so many of them to do. Mm -hmm.
Whereas, whereas Rose and even Lou Hoover, Mrs. Hoover, wrote these really long, mm -hmm. wonderful letters. And uh, Mrs. Hoover was a great one to, you know, like write a long letter and say, oh, please ex excuse my sloppy thinking and my mm -hmm. bad grammar. Mm -hmm. And you'd, you'd look at it and go, okay, I don't see either sloppy thinking or bad grammar. It's sort of like when you type an email and you're like saying like, type this on my phone, hope it's okay. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I didn't read this, I didn't proof this. Yeah. We, yeah, if, yeah. If, if I've used the wrong word or I've just, yeah, yeah I, I wanted to get this to you quickly. Yeah, I just wanted to get this to you quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, kind of going back more mm -hmm. on Rose, how, how did she help her mom write the Little House books? I know we say she kind of like made it more more brief brevity well and 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 she she helped her mom wrestle with things like character development mm -hmm. her mom really wanted to do her, her mom would help her with structuring the narrative with tightening plot lines with developing characters with developing characters that's interesting because these were i mean real people they were real people but rose wanted to uh like laura wanted to tell uh -huh. she she Rose would, would argue, you can make composite characters. They don't have to be all. You can give one character the traits of four people. Oh, the, yeah. You know, and... and, and, and you can combine characters. You can combine characters. And, 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 and Rose, but, but, but they weren't... And Rose is saying, it doesn't matter. This is what makes it a story and not history. This is a story. It's a historical fiction. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Rose kept having to hammer her fiction means that we can take liberties with the facts we can gloss over certain certain aspects, certain aspects of life we don't have to you know do do the every waking moment stuff because right. people aren't going to read that you know you use an example of you know uh, of, of you know a, a day in the life okay mm -hmm. you don't have to do monday tuesday wednesday thursday we got it Life was kind of a grind when you first are breaking sod on the prairie. So kind so, of just point out like the highlights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the the highlight of like a right. highlight reel of people. Yeah, a highlight reel of people tell stories that that, that have a little point, mm -hmm. you know, that, that that add to your understanding of how you grew up the way you did. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go through, like, you know, there, there's some schoolhouse stories that, that are told, uh, you know, uh, about the teachers and, and bullies in class and stuff. And, you know, Rose kept on her mom, squeeze these together, make one good story mm -hmm. out of all these little pieces. Mm -hmm. And that's what people remember. They don't, and, and, and Laura would say, but that's not how it happened. It's like, right. mom, <laughs> Yes. Let's go back to point number one. What makes a story interesting is what makes it, you know, it has a beginning, a middle, no, and know. an end, and a point. Okay? It, it, you know. Sometimes you go through a whole story and you're like, well, what was the point of that? Because life is like that. Life sometimes. is like that. And, 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 when you, and when you're when you're writing for, you know, like a, a, a series for juveniles or young adults, you want the story. The attention span. You want the stories to keep moving. You, you, you want the stories to have you know, right. a, a point. Right. And, and, and that, that was, yeah, a, again and again, you know, long letters back and forth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Laura would, would have to explain to Rose certain things that Rose did not know about, like about growing up in a 19th century farm. 
you know, Rose would say, what's a Poland? It's a kind of pig. Gotcha. Who knew? Right. I didn't. Yeah. Clearly Rose didn't. She, she was more right. urban than, than right. rural. Uh, you know, so, you know. Right. So just details like yeah. that. Right. So, you know, it, it wasn't like Rose beat Laura into submission. Right. Do it my way, Mom. You know, Laura had... She, she was a strong woman too. She wasn't. Yeah. Gonna, she wasn't. Gonna get, she was not going to get bullied. Not going to get bullied by her daughter. Yeah. Uh, so so you know it's a, well, it's of a, course not. You never get bullied by your daughter. Mom knows that. <laughs> I'm, I'm the mom. I'm the, I'm the mom. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know very many uh, daughters that bully their mom into submission. Yeah. I guess there's a few. But, <laughs> but yeah, not very often. So, have you ever done a s display with the little house yes. Uh, documents? Oh, yes, you have. We have. Okay. We have. Yeah. When was that? Oh, twenty years ago. Oh, eighteen okay. years ago. So it's due for like another show. Our revival. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have people because because we we feature Laura and Rose on our website because it is. Right. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting. You know, uh, uh, and, and people they come here and they're like, "Where's the little house?" Where's, where's the little house exhibit? And it's like, well, it, the exhibit was in the past. If you want to see the documents, you can go back to the library. Was there anything though that like uh, that carried on from Hoover to FDR? Because I mean, they once the depression hit, like, was there anything that Hoover was trying that? There were some things that Roosevelt carried carried through. I mean, they, they were fundamentally different mm -hmm. guys philosophically. Mm -hmm. uh, Hoover was a very um, uh, very traditional in his view of the presidency. You know, the president has certain constitutional um, restraints on his behavior. Right. Where Roosevelt came in, and 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 Hoover's philosophy was basically, uh, you know, no matter what's going on, uh, the best solution is always going to be local. Uh, the best solution is always going to be private. Um, you know, we're, we're going to run a balanced budget. We're, we're, we're not going to go off the gold standard. You know, the last thing he wanted to do as president was move the country in any way toward uh, statism or socialism. He just thought that was un-American. Where Roosevelt comes in and he's going to try anything because, my God, the, the country's, the country's, in, in, the country's in, in crisis. And... Okay, yeah, he campaigned on a balanced budget, but the first thing he did was just moved a lot of things off budget, set up a separate budget line for relief, mm -hmm. and you know ran that. And it's like okay, technically the balance, the budget was in balance, right. but a third of the budget that he was spending for relief projects mm -hmm. didn't get counted. Uh, mm -hmm. But he 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 was not. Uh, his philosophy was more try anything Do anything. Don't just sit. There. Don't just stand there. Don't don't yeah. you know cling to your philosophy. People are people are starving. People are struggling. Mm -hmm. Do something. Yeah. And even if the something you do it's is wrong. At, at, or ends up being unconstitutional right. or ends up being at cross purposes with other policies, at yeah. least we're making mistakes moving forward. Right. We're, we're, we're not just going to wait this bad boy out. We're going to get gonna, rid of what doesn't work. Figure, yeah, figure keep, out what works. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, and 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 you know, Hoover was too wed to his philosophy, mm -hmm. and 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 I was I would argue, and this is Matt, historians and economists, you know, however many they have in the room, there's always one more opinion than the end. So yeah. if there are two historians, there are three opinions. Two, two economists to three opinions. Uh, this is just my take on it, and, and others see it differently, is that Hoover uh, was crippled by his own success. He had never failed. Mm -hmm. And he did not 
deal with the failure as president. Okay. He, he just clung tighter to what he believed in. And, you know, he campaigned in 32 on, we're going to stay the course. You know, we're going to turn the corner on this. We are so close to mm-hmm. beating back the Depression. Well, no. No, not really. <laughs> no, not really. And, and, you know, uh, he, and he never saw that. He, yeah. you know, even in his memoirs, right, written 20 years later, uh, the Depression was going to turn around. We were on the right course. Right. You know, Roosevelt, well, well, there's a big, there's a five-month gap between the election of, 20, of, of, of 32 and the inauguration of 33. It's the last five-month gap. Mm-hmm. And in those five months, things went to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. You know, people starved in America. And, and Hoover is looking at Roosevelt saying, what do you want me to do? And Roosevelt's saying, I got a plan. I'm going to implement it on March 4th. You know, it's a very savvy political response, but it left Hoover high and dry, high and dry, and just hating Roosevelt for the rest of his life. Yeah. You know, that he would put po- politics above the needs of the of the country, which is kind of ironic because Hoover was putting his philosophy uh-huh. above the needs, uh-huh. of the, but he saw that as a, that's a totally different thing. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. And again, I want to close it up by saying, right. this, is, this is Matt, who's not a trained historian. <laughs> yeah, they kicked me out of that profession. <laughs> they kicked you out, wow. Well, no, they didn't kick me out. <laughs> they just told me I wasn't welcome. <laughs> um, so recently, there was a color film that was found in yes. the White House series. Um, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen a color film from that time. Very, very early. Uh, it was developed in the late 20s. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Ho- Mrs. Hoover was, like her husband, a technophile, loved new tools, loved new, to- new toys, um, got an early uh, Kodak, co- Kodak color film, and it, the, 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 the film was, if you ran it on a regular projector, it projected black and white. But there were tracks... Um, you know, uh, each cell uh-huh. uh, has the image, and you know you run yeah. sixteen or twenty or however many per second to, to have the film, you know, not be jumpy. In the margin, there were um, uh, things to help refract light. So if you ran it through a special projector, it would show us color. Oh. And our AV archivist Lynn Smith, looking at this, said, "There's something weird about this film." Right. And she did some research. And figured out. I think this is not. And I can't remember the name like, of it. That's, that's I think. Seems kind of rare. Like how yes, how the, many uh, projectors were even made up for that? The, she had to go to uh, I think an archives in Georgia, which okay. which makes it their duty or it's kind of their responsibility. The, their charge is to keep old technology. So gotcha. you know your eight track tapes will be playable somewhere in Georgia. So, yeah. Uh, but 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 she did a lot of research, figured it out, and figured out. My God. We, we have, I know for a fact, the earliest color moving images of the White House. Rose garden shots, uh, shots of um, the Hoovers at breakfast, shots of them with their grandkids. Um, it was a pretty cool find. Nice. And she thinks there may be more. Uh, our film is actually stored off-site in Kansas City mm-hmm. in cold storage. And uh-huh. she wants to go down there and do a survey and see if any yeah. any of that if there's if there's more out there. Nice. That'll be her summer project. Oh, fun. You should, yeah, so summer yeah, it, well, no, no, I mean she'll spend a couple of days. Okay, gotcha. But but uh, 
So if she finds some, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, and you can talk to her because she, she, she knows the story way, be way better than I do. Well, that is a cool find. Yeah. That after the stock market crash over, so like uh, about a week. Yeah, yeah it was a Thursday, Thursday, Tuesday, and then it kind of righted the ship for a while, and then began a long, slow decline. Well, our stock market's been going. Oh, you, you, don't look. It just makes yeah. your stomach hurt. Um, yeah. Uh, well, it was one of those things where, at first, you know, the um, when it when the market crashed. Hoover talked to his secretary of, of uh, uh, the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, and Mellon said, "This is just a, it's it's a correction, you know. This is how the, yeah, you know this this is how markets behave. Mm -hmm. If they get too high, they'll they have an autocorrect. The market, you know, the the, the the thinking of the many will actually find its best level, and uh, you know, so Hoover trusted Mellon's judgment." Uh, even though he had, he, he and Mellon didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Uh, but he, uh, you know, he, he went out shortly thereafter uh, at a press conference and said, this is a Wall Street problem. You know, the business of America is fundamentally sound. It's not a Main Street problem. You know, the, the information I get tells me it's going to be a localized event. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we'll do in the, in the interim is uh, he convened uh, 400 businessmen, uh, labor leaders, bankers, in Washington and said, in case this threatens to spread, let's work to preserve employment, preserve wages, and keep productivity going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sure, it's a good idea, we'll do that. And that seemed to hold, I mean, it established a, a floor or a, a basis that kept the, you know, American economy from cratering over the fall uh, 29 uh, early 1930 and uh so when hoover's out giving speeches in early 1930 uh at the chamber of commerce and other such places uh that he says to the reporters who come you've you've come to talk about the depression you're too late we've turned the corner it's done it's behind us which was wrong right. because the summer of 1930 saw a series of bank closings mm -hmm. closings in europe bank crises in America, a ripple effect that, uh, you know, what, if it, if the stock market crash was a local Wall Street glitch in it the fall of 29, anymore. it wasn't anymore. It was a worldwide catastrophe and, and mm -hmm. worldwide markets cratered and uh, demand fell and, uh, so when uh, did he know that it would had like become more serious than in the fall of 1930 okay. it began to dawn on him mm -hmm. and uh so he 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 did what he did always mm -hmm. organized a, a group of experts let's get together the president's emergency committee on employment and i think that's a very telling title emergency committee on employment we're not talking about unemployment relief or anything like that yet it's just let's look at the problem mm -hmm. through this narrow lens we're, we're, are we doing all right with employment? And let's do some information gathering. This is what this is Hoover in a nutshell. We'll get the experts together, gather some information, figure out what the problem is, and begin to address it. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time the committee got together and reported, uh, it was no longer an employment crisis. It was an unemployment relief crisis. Mm -hmm. And so he he 
kept the same body of people, the same guys, renamed it, and in the fall of 31 began to look at unemployment relief. And here began to look state by state and, and, and city by city. Because we have to remember that, that Hoover's information is moving much slower. The, the, you know, like we have unemployment reports that come out every month from the Bureau of Labor yeah. Statistics. And, you know, you can argue about what it means. Is it, you know, is it 4.3% or 4.4%? But back then, he's getting information, you know, at, at the state level and at city levels uh, about unemployment. And, and they're saying, well, you know, it's going to be seasonal. We're having, it's going to be a bad, you know, unemployment's going to be low, but it's only going to be for the winter. Mm-hmm. Or, no, it, we can manage the problem from here. There was only one state that he surveyed in, in the fall of 31 that said, holy mother of God, we are so screwed. We need all the help you can give us. And that was that was Pennsylvania. Interesting. Why Pennsylvania? Uh, a lot of heavy industry in Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. With the steel industry on, on, on the one side of the state and a lot of transportation-based industry on the on the, on oh, the yeah. East Coast. And, uh, and Gifford, so. Gifford Pinchot said, yeah, we're screwed. We need, you know. Yeah, if I mean, if nobody can afford industrial goods, then no one can... And, and, and so Hoover's, yeah. Hoover's always missing, misreading the data. It's bad data, and he's misreading it. Mm-hmm. And by the time he realizes that, oh my God, is you know, we're we're so upside down. We can't. No. Nothing I, nothing I can do is going to work. At least he, he he still tries. You know, I mean, in the summer, in in, in early nineteen thirty two, he persuades Congress to pass the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which is a lending agency to. Do you remember the the banking crisis of two thousand and nine? Yeah. Okay, this is kind of tarp, from for you know. So, so, so it, it, a kind of like government bailout. A government bailout to make whole, you know, uh, railroad lines, insurance companies, mm. and banks. Because if you okay. if you get that money, you know, rather than the government trying to mm-hmm. make give give individual relief to. Give relief to individual citizens, which Hoover was never going to do. You know, we're, we're going to make the the parts of the economy that need help. We're, we're going to bolster them, and they will become you know the the agents mm-hmm. that have the ripple effect. And uh, but Congress was very very uh, they, while they passed it, they were edgy about how to operationalize this idea because they'd never done anything like it before. Yeah. And okay, if if we are going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars of, of, of U.S., you know, of, of our limited resources, should we publicize the banks we lend, you know, the, the agencies we lend to? And it's like, boy, you do that, and you're going to shoot, you, you, you're going to completely minimize the effect this can have because people are going to go, I didn't realize that, you know, First National of Detroit was in such deep, deep water. Mm-hmm. You know, take everything. We, yeah, we're gonna run some banks. The, 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 banks. The, you know, we're gonna have these, so you know, the, the, there's a lot of conflict over how to put this money to use, and do you share the information about how who who's using it, where and how and why, and uh, ultimately the Reconstruction Finance Corporation is one of the tools that Roosevelt uses after the bank holiday in 1933, mm-hmm. uh, and realizes there's a lot of wisdom and not publicizing this and the yeah. reconstruction finance corporation becomes one of the uh, w- one of the useful tools that Roosevelt takes from the Hoover uh, okay. toolkit you know the, 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 uh, one of the questions you ask is you know did did Roosevelt use a lot of Hoover's ideas it's like nah, no he was very yeah. selective uh, he used a lot of Hoover's people mm-hmm. uh, c- because 
you're in the middle of uh, you know the ship is falling apart. Right. You don't want to throw the crew overboard. Right. You don't because want to the, 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 they, have too much turnover. Yeah, you don't want to have too much turnover because you need these guys. Mm -hmm. You know, Arch, you, you can replace cabinet level secretaries, mm -hmm. but those undersecretaries who know how to do stuff, you got to keep them. Right. Because they're, they're the people who, get, who are getting the stuff done. Okay. So people are starving in the 19. In the 1930s, yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So that that seems to be a problem that he's dealt with before. Did he? Right. Why didn't he fix it? He could fix it in Belgium. Right. You know, um, this this is this is for me the essential conundrum of of Hoover. You know, he, around the world, he's the great humanitarian, bringing food where it's needed in times of crisis. You know, he's a problem solver. Okay. In America. There are problems in the Great Depression. Why doesn't he take action to solve them? And I think it ties into his basic philosophy. He saw America as a, as a different kind of place, exceptional, mm -hmm. you know. And he and he goes back to his own his own roots, his own his own history. Mm -hmm. He's he's an orphan child, grows up and becomes a self-made millionaire, becomes Secretary of Commerce, the president, and he's thinking, what made this possible? The America I grew up in. It's unique. Mm -hmm. In all the world, there's nothing quite like it. Where you know a man, by dint of his own his own enterprise, his own grit, his own sand, whatever you want to say, can bootstrap himself up to do whatever he wants to do. In Europe, with with the you know the encroaching of the, you know the the great overreach of the state, people can't do that. There's there's not as much opportunity to move forward, mm -hmm. or to move up, or to move out, or to do you know. Mm -hmm. And he said. Nope, I'm not going to make America more like the socialist states in Europe. I've seen that. That's a failed system. The farther the state reaches, the more it encroaches on the, the ordered individual liberty of man. And I'm not going to do that. Which misreads, in, in my opinion, uh, on a lot of things. Okay, Hoover might have been unique in his time. You know, mm -hmm. there really, you know, he was the richest self-made man in America. You know, uh, he, he he had certain skills. He had tremendous opportunity and luck. You know, he found the richest gold mine in Australia. Only one guy gets to do that. Yeah. You know, he found the richest uh, silver mine in in Burma. Was it silver? Yeah, it was silver in Burma. You know, he's he's just right. he's right. He he's uh, he's um, given a lot of unique opportunities. That and, and and he capitalizes on them. Yeah. And 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 he's smart enough. And and mm -hmm. you know just able to able to realize that well not everybody is Herbert Hoover uh, in any way shape or form you know mm -hmm. and the world had changed between 1900 and 1930 the world had gotten far more complicated uh, you know industry had gotten far larger far more integrated you need a bigger state so uh, would it be fair to say that he uh, his view of why isn't everybody else pulling themselves up by their bootstraps? Uh, kind of what clouded his judgment of Yes. Well, and, and he kept, you know, he again. Uh, yeah, and he kept going back. Well, when we did this, you know, when we needed to feed Belgium, everybody was able to reach in their pocket for that that dime or that dollar or that penny or whatever and, you know, help, help their friend in need, you know, help their, in, you know, their struggling peers across the world. And that, that model works if 90% of the people are working. Uh, I mean, you know, if, if 9 out of 10 families are doing okay, 
then local charity can take care of that 10th family until things get better. If uh, in 1932, by, by, and again, these are really rough estimates because we don't have mm -hmm. granular statistics, 25% of the population is unemployed and another 20% is working less than full time. Uh, there's, there's not enough money in the local economy for, for local charity. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, right. right? If you're in a room with 20 people and nine of them are working less than full-time or not working at all, do the 11 carry the nine? Yeah. Or do they put their hands over their pockets saying, I might be next. Yeah. I, I got to take care of my family first. Right. You know, so it's, it, yeah. it's a tough spot. Yeah, it's a, it is a tough spot. Um, out of curiosity, did the farmers fare better in the Great Depression? No, no, they got crushed. They got crushed. They got crushed. Well. Yeah, yeah. Um, how deep in the weeds do you want to go here? Uh, uh, not too deep there. I wouldn't understand all of that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I have to admit, my uh, all I know is that. Farm commodity prices cratered. Oh yeah, things For went sure. things went really south. I just didn't know uh, if they there was were a, there, like, the, uh, the, uh, not starving because they grew the food. Uh, the, the, yeah, I mean there there were back to the land movement, that, and and you know uh, we, we when we're talking about farming in 1930, it's not like farming today. It, it, it's not you know that sort of mono monoculture where we're what are you growing this year? Corn, beans. No, you uh, Iowa still had you know, diversified individual farms. Uh, and so farmers were able to feed themselves, but they couldn't make any money on what they were planting. Mm -hmm. uh, and they um, had been encouraged in the 20s to, uh, to modernize, to mechanize, to buy tractors, you know, to replace their, their team, yeah. teams of horses and, 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 and to plant wider. So now know. they're in debt because they can't now, pay off now, now there's Now they're strapped with mortgages, uh, uh, you know, ag loans. They can't pay for and the they machinery they, they can't, just yeah. bought. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of farmers uh, who... Went belly up. Went belly up, got, got, got crushed. And, you know, Iowa farmers, uh, I mean, there, there, there are revolts in farm states. Uh, you know where where farmers would go to, uh, the, the you know the, uh, the the county sheriff would uh, attach assets. Say you know you owe this much money to the bank, you can't pay. We're going we're going to uh, auction off all your gear until you pay the bank. Well, the farmers would go and uh, pay pennies on a dollar and then give it back to the guy. Uh, I mean it, you know America was very close to uh, having a revolution in the 30s. We don't. I mean uh, other countries did, but we don't. We we have an election. Yeah. And we vote for Roosevelt, and we, you know, mm -hmm. have a have a sort of a structural revolution in how the government deals with its people. You know, mm -hmm. does does the federal government have an obligation to feed the starving, to you know provide a welfare state for those who who can't provide for mm -hmm. themselves? And the answer is yes. Uh, I mean, we keep you know that's why the, uh, Roosevelt won in a landslide in thirty two, and won in a bigger landslide in thirty six. Right, because you want to keep it from that. From. From, that level. from the chaos of revolution, yeah. mm -hmm. and and you know, like I said, other countries have revolution, mm -hmm. uh, and we see the rise of, you know, uh, the Stalin consolidates power in the Soviet Union and creates a different kind of model for how how a state should treat its people. Hitler rises in Europe, Mussolini in Italy, okay, mm -hmm. you know, uh, while 
to Hoover's eyes, he looks at Roosevelt and sees Stalin, Hitler, and Mussolini rolled into one. Mm-hmm. Americans dumbed. Yeah. You know, the Americans see, you know, yeah. benevolent Uncle Frank. You know, he's he's taking care of us. Mm-hmm. He's he's you know fixing the problems of the mm-hmm. depression. Right. Which is why Roosevelt wins. It was like a four. A four term. Four four termer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. The yeah. one and only. Please leave a review, a rating, a message, just whatever you can on whatever app you're using to listen to this. It really helps. I know from personal experience. And I really thank you for listening. I may not have a large audience because, well, loving the classics is kind of a niche thing. But I don't want these classics to die out. And that is why I need your help. Please like and share. We're a little late, so good night, folks. This has been a Hope Sears presentation, darling.